We're going to be in Ephesians 5 today. I told you last week we'd be in Romans, and, um, you know, I changed my mind during the week. I said I didn't get done in Ephesians 5, and I got to get done before we go back to Romans. I'm excited to go back to Romans. Uh, so, uh, Ariel will be beginning this week, and Amy is going to be training Ariel for the next month. She will overlap with Ariel and be working up to 10 hours a week just to help her get through all the different things that happen in children's ministry in a month's time. And then sometime after that, we're going to just have a celebration of Amy's ministry to us here. So we want you to know that too and be a part of that. She's been a good friend of mine and a great worker at Lockwood Church. So we're so grateful for her and we want to tell her that. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5. Let me tell you a story so we get started. There's a German scientist named Jan Soman who took groups of volunteers out into empty parking lots and empty fields, blindfolded them, and told them to walk in a straight line. Okay? Some of them succeeded for about 10 steps. Some made it to 20, a few to 50, a couple got to 100. But eventually, all of them circled around and started back to where they came from. It wasn't some of them, not even most of them, but every single one eventually circled back. And Dr. Suman said they had no idea. They thought they were walking in a straight line all the time. Some people turned to the left, some people to the right, but no matter how determined they were to walk in a straight line, no matter how sure they were that they had walked in a straight line, when they took their blindfolds off, they had all circled around and started back to where they came from. Something like that can happen in the Christian life. People start off walking in one direction, away from their old life, as fast as they can go. They're resolute, they're determined, and yet without any conscious decision on their part, they find themselves on a long circle back to their old lives. They walk the wrong way. That story provides background for our text, where St. Paul wants his Christian friends not to walk back on their commitment to Christ. And I use the word walk intentionally because it's the word that St. Paul uses in Ephesians as a metaphor for living the Christian life. He uses it five times in chapters 4 and 5 as he instructs them how to walk. He tells them, in effect, walk this way. We saw three of those five occurrences last week, though in the version I was using, none of them were translated that way. So in chapter 4, verse 1, when the NIV reads, Lead, live a life worthy of your calling, St. Paul's really employing that walking metaphor. Walk worthy of the calling you've received. In 4.17, same kind of thing. No longer live like the Gentiles do. That's the version we were looking at. It's literally no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. And chapter 5, verse 2, live a life of love is literally walk in love. I ran out of time last week, and I could only give the briefest mention to that last point, walk in love. Today we want to pick up there and we'll go on to look at the other two walking metaphors Paul uses. They, they come in verse 8 and verse 15. Now, before we read those verses, let me remind you of where we've been. Chapter 4, verse 1, 
is the verse that controls the whole second half of Ephesians. So the letter to the Ephesians is divided into two basic parts, chapters 1 through 3, chapters 4 through 6, and verse 1 of chapter 4 controls everything that follows. Paul urges his Ephesian friends there to walk worthy of the calling they've received. The trajectory of their lives changed on the day that God called them called them to join his side and serve his son. They had a calling now, a calling to live up to, a purpose to fulfill. Their allegiance had changed. Their citizenship had been transferred. They now belonged to the kingdom of God and were the people of the king. They had a calling. Then in verse 17, we saw Paul urge his friends not to walk blindfolded. That is, in the futility of their thinking the kind of thinking that characterizes people's lives otherwise. Because if they do, they're going to end up making a mockery of their calling. They're going to end up walking back on their commitment. They won't succeed in God's kingdom where that old self-centered lifestyle doesn't fit. In the kingdom of God, we live a different way because we live for a different person, for the king for Jesus. The third walk this way passage, the one we hardly had time to look at last week, comes at the beginning of chapter five. There Paul tells people, the people of the calling, to become imitators of God. It's the only place in the whole Bible where we're told that. Nowhere else does the, in the Bible are we specifically told to imitate God, but we are here and then to walk in love. The idea that creatures like us, so small, so limited, ought to imitate God who is infinite and unlimited, it seems a little over the top. And it would be over the top, except that's God's own plan. Through the incarnation, when God became human in Messiah Jesus, and through the impartation of the Spirit, creatures like us can be, are supposed to, imitate the infinite God because he inhabits us. It's the presence of God that makes it possible for us to do this. Some years ago, there was a pastor in Minnesota named Mark Thompson who came home and there was somebody in his house and um, somebody broken into his house who assaulted him and seriously wounded him. His injuries caused him to miss his son's state cross-country championship meet. So his son went to state, and he couldn't go to the meet because of his injuries, so Pastor Thompson asked his brother Merv to go in his stead. So according to the St. Paul pioneer, Mark told his brother, I want you to be there to see Chris run. So I want you there at the beginning of the race. Holler a lot. Then at the end, I want you to cheer loudly and I want you to make your voice sound like mine. Merv, who's also a pastor, couldn't miss the theological import of that statement. He said, that's what Jesus wants us to do. Make your voice sound like mine. Or as Paul puts it here, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. The imitation of God is explained there in verse 2, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, or handed himself over for us. How on earth do people like us 
imitate the infinite, incomprehensible, all-knowing, all-powerful God. We can't imitate his infinity, nor his omnipotence, nor his omniscience. So how do we imitate him? We do it by living a life of love. Literally, walk in love. The only way to walk worthy of your calling is to walk in love. The moment you and I stop walking in love, we begin circling back to our old way of life. I mean, the moment we stop loving, that's what happens. It's not that we choose it. It's not that we say, I'm going back to my old life. It's that we can't help it when we stop choosing to love. The people who progress in the right direction, okay, you get that, right? You are progressing somewhere, but it might be in the wrong direction. The people who progress in the right direction are people who keep choosing to love again and again. Let me illustrate how this works. So there is a reason that a million-pound airplane like the Airbus 380 can fly. And the reason is that the laws of aerodynamics are suspended, as it were, or they suspend, as it were, the law of gravity. If the plane, for some reason, ceases to operate by the laws of aerodynamics, say it runs out of fuel, or a hole opens in the fuselage, the law of gravity will immediately and disastrously reassert itself. Okay, same thing in the Christian life. If, if you, for some reason, and there are all kinds of possible reasons, stop living by the law of love, the law of sin and death will immediately reassert itself on your life. If the Christian stops walking in love, he or she will walk right back into the old life. If we want to walk this way, the Jesus way, we must choose to love. We must walk in love. I said a Christian might stop walking in love for any number of reasons. Paul mentions one by name. Unforgiveness. Unforgiveness blindfolds us. It keeps us from seeing what's really going on. causes us to miss the fact that we've lost our way, that we're walking back towards the life we left, the life from which Jesus liberated us. Unforgiveness. It's one of the main reasons Christians fail in their calling. At the very end of chapter 4, and remember there in the original letter, in our original New Testament manuscripts, there are no chapter divisions. Those were added 1,100, 1,200 years after the Bible was written. There are no chapter breaks. At the end of chapter 4, Paul says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Just as in Christ God forgave you, the very next thing he says is, be imitators of God. Therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love. In our fallen world, a life of love will always be a life of forgiveness. You cannot walk in love and in unforgiveness at the same time. It will pull you apart. An unwillingness to forgive in a Christian is like a crit critical systems failure on an airplane. The result's going to be ugly, and it may be deadly. Today I'm your flight mechanic, and I'm telling you unforgiveness will change the flight plan of your life. God's plan for your life. It might even bring you down. Take care of unforgiveness. And don't wait. Do it. 
Do it now. If you have to get up right this moment and walk out that door to go take care of it, that's exactly what Jesus instructed people to do. Take care of unforgiveness. So, walk worthy of the calling. That's chapter 4, verse 1. That's the verse that governs the rest of the letter. The life worthy of your calling is going to be different from the life of a non-Christian neighbor of yours or your non-Christian friends. That's chapter 4, verse 17. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. And the main difference is going to be love. That's chapter 5, verse 1. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Unforgiveness is one thing that will get in the way of that life of love. There are others. One is secretiveness. Lack of transparency. Keeping secrets. Hiding sins. It's contrary to the life of the high calling. If you find yourself thinking about how to hide things from people in your life, you're already in trouble. The people whom God has called and who have answered that call by confessing Jesus is Lord, the people of God's kingdom must walk as children of light. This is verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live, walk, literally, as children of light. What does it mean to walk as children of light? Well, right up front, it means don't keep secrets. At least not about yourself. Somebody shares something with you, you keep that confidential. But you live transparently. Instead of hiding the things you're ashamed of, you change them. You walk in the light. Now, that doesn't start with, in your relationship with people in the community or in the church or even in your home. It starts in your relationship with God. We learn to live in the light by confessing our sins to him, even our hopes, our desires. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, St. John told us, we have fellowship with one another. Being open with God frees us to be open with others. And when we walk in the light, we become light. So Paul says, you were once darkness. Not you were once in darkness. That was true too. But you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Outside of the Lord, you stop being light. But in his light, you become a light that helps others find their way. You know, I, as a pastor, I meet with people all the time who are worried about family members who don't know Jesus. You know what the best thing you can do for your family member? You get close to Jesus yourself. As close as you can get. You become a light. Astronomers have a term for, uh, a measurement term to convey how much sunlight a celestial body reflects. They call it albedo. The planet Venus, for example, has the highest albedo measurement at 0.65 in our solar system. Or in our night sky, look in the night sky. Venus has the highest uh, albedo. 0.65 means 65% of the sun's light that hits Venus is reflected. And we think that our moon, because it's the brightest body in our night sky, would have the highest albedo, but it doesn't. Only 7% of the sun's light that strikes the moon is reflected. We see it so clearly because it's so close to us. It's in our neighborhood. If the moon reflected the sun's light the way Venus does, we wouldn't be able to sleep at night. Paul is saying that each of us, in a manner of speaking, has a spiritual albedo. 
Our lives either reflect God's light or they absorb it. Love is a reflective material. Sin absorbs God's light. Some people virtually shine. Others glimmer occasionally. But none of us produce light. We can only reflect the light of God, and that will lead people to him, to his kingdom, to a much better life. And so Paul writes, And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We don't produce light. We reflect it. But if we hide things about ourselves, if we stay in the shadows obscured by sin, our lives aren't going to lead anybody to God. Now, here's something you need to know. You might be saying, oh, then, uh, it's discouraging. You need to know that it's not our situation around us that becomes light when we turn to Christ. Some people think it is. Some people talk as if it is. But our situation can be as dark and murky as ever. In fact, the darkness of our situation can sometimes be really frightening. God never promised and usually doesn't intend to light our situations but to light our lives like torches in dark caverns, like stars on a dark night. Have you ever been in a really dark place? I mean really dark, a place where you could put your hand right in front of your face and couldn't see it? If you have been, you know it is disconcerting. You feel rooted to the floor, afraid to move. Now imagine you're in a place like that, some dark underground hall that stretches on for a mile and you can't see a thing. The darkness is oppressive. You're afraid to move. Where do you go? How do you find your way? And then suddenly someone a thousand yards away lights a single match. Immediately you see it. In the darkness it looks like a conflagration. It gives you direction. It gives you hope. We can be that single match. Our albedo, that measure of the reflection of Christ's light, it doesn't have to be super high. If the situation we're in is dark enough, whatever light we reflect will be a help to those around us. Remember, the moon has a very low albedo number. And yet, because it's so close to us, it lights our darkest nights. We don't have to be perfect to give people close to us light. We just need to be in the light. And the more of our lives we bring into the light, the more we will reflect. Our spiritual albedo number will go up. That's why Paul says, we who reflect, uh, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. The more we become like him, the more our reflection quotient goes up. Right. So far, Paul's been telling us, walk this way. Walk worthy of your calling. Don't walk back to your old life, but walk in love, right into the life God's creating for you. Walk as children of light, reflecting the light the Lord is shining on you. Now, there's one more walk this way verse in this passage. It's verse 15. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. A literal translation, therefore, watch carefully how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. 
Have you noticed in these verses how Paul links the word walk with the word as? It's sort of a one-two punch. In 5-2, it's as dearly loved children walk in love. Just like hurt people hurt people, loved people loved love people. And we are dearly loved people. In 5-8, it's walk as children of light. Here in 5.15, it's walk as wise people. We are people of the calling. We can't afford to be unwise. Now, who are the unwise? They're not the unintelligent. You can be highly intelligent. Your IQ can be off the charts, and you can be utterly unwise. Or, alternately, you can possess a very mediocre intelligence and be unusually wise. In context, the wise person is the one who makes the most of opportunities. The unwise person is the one who lets opportunities slip by. What kind of opportunities does Paul have in mind? He's not talking about stock investments or real estate opportunities or job prospects. He's talking about opportunities to love, opportunities to shine with the love of Jesus. When the shining saint, Malcolm Muggridge, was nearing the end of his life, he said this. You know, sometimes someone asks me what I most want, what I should most like to do in the little that remains of my life. And I always nowadays truthfully answer, and it is truthful, I should like my light to shine, even if only very fitfully, like a match struck in a dark cavernous night and then flickering out. And he shone. And you know what? So this is for some of you folks who are getting older, unlike me. You know, <laughs> The people who shine brightest, every one of them who I've known has been older. I don't think it has to be that way. But I think it's possible for people to grow old and have that reflective quality increase and increase until they shine. That's what I want, to shine. You might say, I don't have opportunities to shine. And you know what? The best advice for you is, don't worry about it. Don't look for opportunities. Look for Jesus. Go get close to him. Get close to him and you will shine. God has prepared opportunities for you. Opportunities to shine. But you won't even see them unless you're walking in the light. If you're hiding stuff, you won't see them. He'll provide opportunities for you to love. But you'll walk right by them if you're not receiving his love for you. You don't have to go searching for opportunities. Opportunities will find you. They will bowl you over if you get close to God. Not long before he died, Dallas Willard, whom I regard as a wise and trusted teacher, was asked if he had any regrets. So it's a live interview, a bunch of people there. His friend John Ortberg do you have any regrets, Dallas? And his answer was, I regret the time I've wasted. His friend Ortberg heard that and was stunned. 
Dallas Willard regrets the time he's wasted? There, is there anybody in the world who has wasted less time than Dallas Willard? But Ortberg, thinking about that later, realized Dallas didn't say that because he compared himself to other more efficient people, so there weren't any. But because he began, he had begun to see what life could be. And he thought of something that Dallas had once said. He said, all of us lost souls allow ourselves to live in anger and worry and self-importance and pettiness when life with God is all around us. And he's right, we've all done that. So here's what I say to us today. Let's not do it anymore. Let's not waste ourselves or the grace of God or the opportunities he gives us. Let's not waste our lives in unforgiveness. Let's not spend another moment in the darkness. Let me close by trying to make something clear. When Paul says, walk this way, he's not stating a preference or an opinion. He's describing the way to thrive in the world God made. We walk this way because it works. And it works because that's the way God made it and made us. In verse 2, Paul says, walk in love. Why? Because, as St. John told us, God is love. In verse 8, Paul says, walk as children of light. Why? Because, as St. John told us, God is light. Verse 15, walk in wisdom. Why? Because, as St. John told us, God's spirit is truth. Paul didn't come up with these things off the top of his head or out of the blue. They're based on the way the world really is. And it's that way because of the person God really is. And that kind of brings us back to where we started. Be imitators, therefore, of God as beloved children. Back in 1972, just not long before his death, King Edward VIII was interviewed by the BBC. So Edward VIII, he was the guy who abdicated the throne to marry the American divorcee, Wallace Simpson, right? He was interviewed by the BBC. He was living in Paris, and, and he was asked about a whole lot of things. And one of the things they asked him about was his boyhood as the Prince of Wales, the heir to the throne of, of England. And he said, my father, King George V, my father was a strict disciplinarian. Uh, when I read this, I kind of had to chuckle. My dad was a strict disciplinarian. I read about this guy. It didn't sound quite the same as my dad, but... He, and, and Edward VIII said, sometimes when I had done something wrong, he would admonish me, saying, my dear boy, you must always remember who you are. That's not how my dad admonished me. <laughs> but I like that way. Recalling that story years, years later. The great pastor and scholar John Stott, the rector of All Souls Church, London, said, it's my conviction that our Heavenly Father says the same to us every day. My dear child, you must always remember who you are. Walk worthy of your calling. Let's remember who we are. Become imitators of God, therefore, as beloved children. Let's pray. 
God, would you take something from what was just said and stick it in us? Not so that we remember some Bible truth, but so that we live it. So that we shine for Jesus' sake. Amen.